It's the Noon Report from Family Life, bringing a Christian worldview to what's happening in New York, Pennsylvania, across the country, and around the world. Weather with Kevin Williams, sports with Sunny Delphiette, plus special features and reports with the Family Life News team. Now, here's what's happening. Let's make a deal. Good afternoon. The U.S. Senate has just reached a deal to avoid a government shutdown, but it's just one piece in a very large and complicated fiscal puzzle. We'll try to put it together for you. But first, political analyst Larry Sabato says the hard work for Congress, well, that's just beginning. They have much bigger challenges from the debt limit to the infrastructure bill to the giant $3.5 trillion bill that includes a lot of domestic matters. That's the real work of Congress, and we'll see whether they can get it done. The Senate deal today funds the government for the next nine weeks. What does that mean? Reporter Laura Podesta. 800,000 federal employees will not be furloughed, and critical agencies dealing with the coronavirus pandemic can continue to work. Still, Congress must find a way to tackle the debt crisis by October 18th, so as to avoid an economic meltdown. Illinois Senator Dick Durbin says a lot hangs in the balance for Democrats. You know, we are one heartbeat away from losing the majority in the United States Senate, and I've been in the Senate long enough to see that happen. Congress remains at odds on the debt cap, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, and that Build Back Better White House domestic agenda, which has a price tag of $3.5 trillion. The House Speaker thinks there are ways to get all three past the finish line. We're on a path to win the vote. I don't want to even consider any options other than that. And no, it's not too ambitious because we're meeting the needs of the American people. And what that is, is what our agenda will be. Nancy Pelosi is coming under fire for suggesting the spending spree is free, meaning it won't cost you, the taxpayer, a single penny. Louisiana Senator John Kennedy. The American people aren't morons. They don't have time to read Aristotle every day, but they get it. They know that all this is not free. West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin is the key to the president's domestic agenda, and he calls that massive budget reconciliation bill the very definition of fiscal insanity. We lost the war. That's what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, said during testimony to the House Armed Services Committee. It is obvious to all of us that the war in Afghanistan did not end on the terms that we wanted with the Taliban now in power in Kabul. The war was a strategic failure. Top Pentagon brass blamed the State Department for the chaotic evacuation, which ultimately led to the deaths of 13 U.S. service members. Iowa Congresswoman Marionette Miller-Meeks. 13 uh, U.S. service members gave their lives uh, because they conducted uh, an incompetent, inept uh, operation of withdrawal. The suicide bomber who killed those Americans had been released by the Taliban from the Bagram Air Base just three days before the blast. Bagram, of course, is the base that we abandoned in the weeks leading up to the fall of Afghanistan. Well, way down south in Panama, 60,000 Haitians are headed to Mexico with an eye on arriving eventually at our southern border. 800 Haitians a day are crossing into Mexico from Guatemala. Florida Senator Marco Rubio says in Colombia... There are anywhere from 20 to 25,000 Haitian migrants in Colombia right now, and all of them are headed here at some point. Not all at once, but they are headed here eventually. Rubio warns Latin America is being flooded with Haitians who want to make the USA their home. What happens is rumors spread within these communities that something has, some borders been opened or what have you, and they come. So we have a big, looming 
ticking time bomb crisis on our hands. Rubio says foreign ministers from Latin America have begged the Biden administration for months to do something about the Haitian migrants, but those requests, he says, are falling on deaf ears. Florida Congressman Michael Waltz says instead of insulting our border agents, the White House needs to crack down on illegal immigration. And this administration is not supporting those brave men and women who are waking up every day to keep our communities and keep our borders safe. Uh, And, you know, they're putting the burden on them rather than on their policies to disincentivize these thousands of migrants many of which have COVID. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas said this week that 20% of the migrants let into America from Haiti are sick. The CDC issuing an urgent plea to moms-to-be. The Centers for Disease Control wants pregnant women to get vaccinated against COVID. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. We know that pregnant women are at increased risk of severe disease, of hospitalization and ventilation. They're also at increased risk for adverse events to their babies. And the nation's biggest retailer is hiring for the holidays. Walmart says it plans to hire 150,000 workers, with most taking on permanent full-time positions. The company also plans to offer extra hours to make up for pandemic-related labor shortages. Still to come on the noon report plans to redo the Ralph, saving the salamander in Pennsylvania and the fall foliage about to peak in New York's North Country. First, let's stop by the Weather Center, Kevin Williams. Our early autumn weather pattern is going to carry us into the weekend. I'll be back with forecast details coming up in about 10 minutes. All right, thank you, Kevin. About that fall foliage, it is near its peak in the Adirondack Mountains. Volunteer spotters for the I Love New York program report near-peak conditions in Essex, Franklin, Hamilton, and Herkimer counties. The foliage is at mid-peak stage in parts of the Catskills, Chautauqua, Allegheny counties, as well as the 10,000 Islands region along the eastern shores of Lake Ontario. New York's vaccine mandate for health care workers facing another challenge in court. Three nurses claim their religious liberties are being infringed upon. Family Life's Jeremy Miller. Two of those nurses are from downstate, while the third works at St. Joseph's Hospital in Syracuse. A lawyer for the nurses says they refused because the shots were either made or tested with cell lines that were developed from aborted fetuses, and it violates their religious beliefs to have any part in that. A federal judge in Utica had already imposed an injunction that stops the state from enforcing the mandate on health workers who claim a religious exemption pending a hearing next month. The nurse's lawyer argued that Governor Hochul was pressuring private employers to fire unvaccinated health workers with public statements like God wants people to get the shot and that there are no legitimate religious exemptions. The state argued that offering a religious exemption to the mandate would defeat the purpose. Jeremy Miller, Family Life News. An 11-year-old boy helped save the day at Frontier Middle School in Hamburg, New York yesterday. The child alerted authorities after another student brought a gun to school. But it got, like, weird. Like, why would he do that? That's 11-year-old Jaden Thompson. He says the boy with the gun showed him the bullets in a school bathroom. Scary. Very scary. I mean, these are children with weapons. The Good Samaritan's mother, Jillian Kelbeck, is convinced that her son stopped a potentially deadly situation. I mean, thankfully, he knew enough to to get out and to go tell right away. And thank God, because 
it, it could have been awful. I could have been planning a funeral today. The gun was secured, and the student who brought it to school is being dealt with. There are new developments in the effort to build the Buffalo Bills a new stadium. The team's in talks with two Los Angeles firms to help sort out the details. Mark Gannis runs a sports consulting firm in western New York. It's like a building or a construction project having an owner's representative. Uh, it doesn't mean they're doing the work, but they're making sure that the work that's being done is being done properly. Bills owners Terry and Kim Pagula have called for a more than $1 billion stadium near the current one in Orchard Park. The Pagulas want taxpayers to foot the bill. The state's looking into a private-public funding partnership to pay for that new stadium in Buffalo. Bro family forces in Pennsylvania are upset with efforts to legalize adult-use recreational marijuana. The bipartisan bill decriminalizes the drug, and it could be a cash cow for the Commonwealth. Still, State Representative Clint Owlett says the $400 million a year it would generate just not worth it. They may be seeing revenue, but the additional issues that come along with it, social issues, that cost the state a lot of money are very expensive as well. The Northern Tier Republican says his district is not on board with the idea of pot smoking in PA. It's not something my district supports. I would not support it. The proposal would make it legal for anyone 21 and up to purchase and consume recreational weed in the state of Pennsylvania. The Ontario County New York Sheriff has resigned amid a misconduct investigation. Kevin Henderson had been the focus of a week's long probe for making off-color comments that were racial, sexual, and homophobic in nature. It was very trying, and it was hard for for people to, to keep a to keep a a real positive outlook as to what was going on. Lee Martin heads up the Police Benevolent Association of Ontario County, which recently issued a no-confidence vote in the sheriff. I've worked here for 31 years. I've seen a lot of changes. Uh, I feel that the only thing that we can do from here is move forward and as a group do things to make everything better here. Uh, I think there's nowhere to go but up from here. Sheriff Henderson had been with the sheriff's department for 38 years. He was sheriff for two of those years. 17 deputies have quit since he took over. A Queens, New York assemblyman wants a victim's compensation fund for the thousands who lost lost loved ones in nursing homes from COVID-19. New York State Assemblyman Ron Kim calls it official state recognition of failed policies. A proposed victim's compensation fund for those who lost loved ones in nursing homes last year. The money that we set aside is is close to $4 billion. He says exact amounts are still being negotiated, but his bill allows payouts to start at $250,000 per family. We'll make it very expensive for the government and the nursing home industry at large to mistreat our loved ones. The families are still on a quest for accountability. Haiti Pabe says compensation from the state means the government is taking responsibility. It's not going to bring my mother back, but it will bring us some peace and justice. That report from correspondent Steve Burns, a COVID story from Tompkins County involving a husband and wife who are both volunteer firefighters, threatened to turn into tragedy, but is now edging toward a happy ending. And Family Life's Mark Webster has the details. Young newlyweds Lynn and Austin Carpenter both volunteer in Dryden, east of Ithaca. Then Lynn, pregnant with their first child, contracted COVID and was hospitalized September 1st. Pregnancy limited treatment options and her worsening condition forced an emergency C-section to try to save the lives of mother and child. 
A week later, the ailing Lynn gave birth to Dawson, just 12 inches long and under 4 pounds. Both immediately went into intensive care. Finally, this past weekend, Lynn Carpenter came off of a ventilator and was able to hold her newborn son for the first time. Both still face recovery time. Meanwhile, people in Dryden are raising funds to help defray the couple's medical bills. Mark Webster, Family Life News. All right, thank you for that story, Mark. More than 120 eastern hellbender salamanders were released recently into a stream in the upper reaches of Susquehanna River in northeastern PA. That project, part of a groundbreaking program at Lycoming College. Those salamanders were raised at the Bronx Zoo. The hellbender is North America's largest salamander. It can reach a length of two feet. It was designated Pennsylvania's official state amphibian, too, a couple years ago. Each of the salamanders have tags to monitor the status of the hellbender population there in Pennsylvania. Sports next, it's the two-minute drill with Sonny Delphia. Yeah, let's start with that wild American League wildcard race. The Yankees, Red Sox, Mariners, and Blue Jays fighting for just those two wildcard spots. Let's start in Toronto, where Bo knows home runs. To right center field, he's hit it well. Gone! That was Bo Bichette in the third, then in the eighth, tied at five. To right center field, did he get enough? Yes! That would be your final score. Blue Jays win 6-5. to five. Here's Bo. I think just embracing it. Um, this is what we dream of doing. I wouldn't be playing baseball if it wasn't for moments like this. This is why I work hard, why I do what I do. Marcus Simeon also went deep with his 44th homer on the year. That's the most ever by a second baseman. Toronto one game behind Boston for the second wild card. New York has a one game lead over the Red Sox for the top wild card spot. Boston pounded the Orioles 6-0. The Mariners won for the 10th time in 11 games. They beat the A's 4-2 to remain a half game behind Boston. To the National League. Atlanta beat the Phillies 7-2 and have won 9 of 11 to reduce their magic number to 1. Philadelphia dropped four and a half games back in the standings with their third straight loss. They can be eliminated from postseason contention with one loss or one Atlanta win. Elsewhere, the Rockies big over the Nationals 10-5. Cubs snapped a seven-game losing streak with a 3-2 win against the Pirates in Kansas City. And he hits it to center field. Salvador Perez hit his league-leading 48th home run on the season in that 10-5 Worlds win over Cleveland. The home run ties Perez with Jorge Solier for the most single-season home runs in Royals franchise history. Tonight, Thursday Night Football, Joe Burrow and the 2-1 Cincinnati Bengals host Trevor Lawrence in the 0-3 Jacksonville Jaguars. For Family Life. I'm Sonny Dolphiet. Thank you, Sonny. Still to come on the Noon Report, crunch time on Capitol Hill. Phone checking is an epidemic and tracing 50 years of contemporary Christian music. The Christian commitment to advancing education is part of the historical record. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with Breakpoint. While not completely consistent in every time and every place, the Christian view of life in the world, especially its view of a created, ordered reality and the divine imprint on every human person, has been history's most fertile ground for the advancement of learning and knowledge. 
And in a Christian worldview, the value of education isn't merely utilitarian. Rather, it grows from the rich soil of a God who wants to be known, creating an ordered and knowable universe whose purpose is stewarded by those created by God, who have the ability to learn and the capacity to put knowledge into his service. That framework has been uniquely successful in bearing educational fruit, even at times of civilizational crises. For example, during the decline of the Roman Empire's authority in Western Europe, education went into sharp decline. At risk of being lost, then, was centuries of accumulated knowledge and learning. An amazing exception happened in Ireland, where Irish monks preserved learning they'd later reintroduce to Europe. They saw the preservation of literature and knowledge from the ancient world as part of their tasks as Christian scholars and clergy. But more than just preserving learning, they actually innovated learning methodology. The Irish also had something to do with the recovery of education that took place back on the continent in the late 8th and early 9th centuries. Having built an empire, Charlemagne realized he desperately needed educated officials to govern it. So he searched for the best scholar in all of Europe to head his program of educational reform, who he found was the Irish-trained Alcuin of York. He started schools and monasteries, cathedrals, even in the palace itself. Alcuin also oversaw the systematic copying and preservation of any and all ancient texts that he could find. In fact, many of the oldest copies of the classical works still in existence today date to copies produced under his direction. However, within a generation or two after Charlemagne, all but the monastic schools had collapsed. But around the year 1000, Europe experienced a major turnaround. The population grew, cities were founded, the government became more centralized. And so, there was a greater demand for education. Christians answered that call. The result is what medieval historians call the Renaissance of the 12th century. The Christian advancement of education was true elsewhere as well. For example, in Germany in the late 14th through 16th centuries, the Brethren of Common Life provided basic education for students, both in the Low Countries and around the rest of the country. Their goal was to equip the population to read the sources of the Christian faith. By training students like Erasmus, Gutenberg, and Luther, the Brethren of the Common Life helped lay the foundation for the Protestant Reformation. History is replete with these stories. The question is, are we we, the church in this time and this age of civilizational crisis, going to follow suit. As I've said before, there's never been a greater opportunity for Christians than right now to take the lead in education. We've seen a dramatic shift in confidence over the last several years, and it's resulted in parents looking for new solutions for their children. The Colson Center is investing heavily right now in training the educators of the next generation at Christian schools, as well as homeschool parents and other leaders of educational innovation. If you'd like to stand with us, every gift given to the Colson Center this this month will go to support the Colson Center's work in equipping educators with a Christian worldview. To learn more, come to breakpoint.org slash September. That's breakpoint.org slash September. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street. This is Breakpoint. 20 past the hour weather next on Family Life. Here is your Family Life weather forecast for this afternoon. A good deal of sunshine across central and western Pennsylvania. A sun cloud mix elsewhere. A couple of scattered showers southeast of Lake Ontario. High temperatures upper 50s to the mid-60s. For tonight, generally clear, but a couple of lake effect clouds and showers southeast of Lake Ontario. Chilly tonight. Low temperatures generally 40s. For tomorrow... 
Sunshine, mixed clouds, high in the 60s, and ample sunshine, warmer Saturday with high temperatures at or a little above 70. All right, Kevin, thank you very much. This is the Noon Report. I'm Bob Price, and there's a lot going on this Thursday, the 30th of September, a consequential day on Capitol Hill. Senate Democrats have struck a short-term deal to avert a government shutdown. It funds the government for another nine weeks, but that's just one piece in a very large and complicated puzzle. Lawmakers must also find a way to solve the nation's debt crisis by the middle of next month. Also hanging in the balance, the Democrats' $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and the $3.5 billion, or make that trillion dollar, budget reconciliation package. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. It's not about a dollar amount. The dollar amount, as the president said, is zero. This bill will be paid for. What? Yeah. How crazy is that? Texas Congressman Ronnie Jackson. I want to tell the American people that it's not going to cost us a dime. I mean, they're acting like they found the money somewhere in a closet in the <laughs> Capitol, uh, and it didn't belong to anybody. It's insane. Everyone knows that there's no free ride, and, and this is a perfect example of it. We're talking about over $5 trillion in spending. Jackson says Democrats are in disarray, and the progressive wing of the party seems to be calling the shots right now on Capitol Hill. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, warns the fall of Afghanistan will breed terrorism in the Taliban-controlled country. It's a real possibility in the not-too-distant future, 6, 12, 18, 24, 36 months, that kind of time frame, for reconstitution of al-Qaeda or ISIS, and it's our job now, you know, under different conditions, but it's our job to continue to protect American citizens against attacks from Afghanistan. Florida Congressman and former Green Beret Michael Waltz. The Pentagon is saying that al-Qaeda is going to come back. You have the intelligence agencies saying al-Qaeda fully intends to come back and attack the West again. And you have the leader of al-Qaeda that has pledged allegiance to the leader of the Taliban. And now you have a Taliban caliphate with an army and air force and international airport and maybe even a central bank if they get their way mm-hmm. to further their jihadi aims. Waltz says civil war is looming in Afghanistan. You and I Check our smartphones. Get this. On average, 96 times a day. That's once every 10 minutes. The data, put together by tech care company Assyrian, said it's a 20% increase from just two years ago. Still, they found that half of Americans are making an effort to use their phones less. People ages 18 to 24 check their phones twice as often as the average, but even baby boomers are seven times more likely to text instead of talking with somebody in person. I'm Mark Mayfield. A new movie unveils the untold story behind the transformation of contemporary Christian music. This thing, Jesus music, found its way in my hometown. And it changed my life. The Jesus Music traces decades of Christian music from its humble beginnings in the late 1960s to what today is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. Christian recording artist Michael W. Smith. I think a lot of people are going to be very surprised at what really spurred this on from really the late 60s, the civil unrest, and all of a sudden um, there was just a breakout of a revival at Calvary Chapel Uh in Costa Mesa, and all the hippies started getting saved, and um, (laughs) that really was kind of where the whole thing started. The Jesus Music shares stories from more than 50 of today's biggest CCM stars. It's a who's who. It's Toby Mack. It's Kirk Franklin. Uh, it's, you know, Mercy Me, it's, you know, uh, and then Lauren Daigle and for King Country. Yeah. It's, it's a who's who. To see five decades of music unite was yeah. really 
exciting. The Jesus Music Director Andrew Irwin, contemporary Christian artist Natalie Grant is also featured in the film. All of us can talk about the soundtrack of our lives. I talk about how Adele makes us cry over heartbreak we never even had before. But when you put hope into the lyric and you're like, wait a second, this is now songs that become anchors. So for me, I can go, when I was going through postpartum depression, I can tell you a song that was an anchor in my life. And this is music. It's more than just a song. It's actually faith and hope that's infused into every word. And that's a game changer. Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant produced the Jesus music, which debuts in theaters tomorrow. It's 25 past the hour. This is the Noon Report. This is Faith Under Fire. Each Thursday on Family Life, we give voice to religious battlegrounds in this nation. I'm your host, Tracy Lynn. With us today, Dr. Danny Huerta, Vice President of Parenting and Youth at Focus on the Family. Divorce is really the ripping of a relationship. We know it's not God's design, and it comes with a whole bunch of emotion. Most likely, mom and dad have different parenting styles and beliefs about how to do things. As a child grows up, how can the differences they witness in their parents be used for good in their own journey? Yes, the way that you interpret what's happening, right? You have two broken parents that had a hard time doing relationship with one another, and so that already puts a child at a disadvantage in that sense, that you're not getting the benefit of both together and showing that love to one another. But what a child can do is look at those differences and gather the strength of what each parent brings. I wrote the book, Seven Traits of Effective Parenting, off of research looking at each parenting style, the authoritative, the authoritarian, the permissive styles, and and parents' at different times land in in different places on that. But the authoritative is the main one that is good for a parent to practice. And if both parents were to say, yeah, we're committed to doing that, and that's the the balance of the seven traits where you have warmth, you have sensitivity, but you're also guiding and having boundaries and limits with purpose. If both parents do that, it really creates a big difference. And then the child being able to see that dads have a unique influence, uh, for instance, A dad, if he shows sensitivity early on in that boy's life, behavioral issues will significantly decrease. And the mom the same way. What do moms bring that are unique when they bring that warmth and sensitivity mixed with good guidance and clarity with boys? Behavioral issues, emotional issues also decrease. Realize that as mom and dad, as you're listening to this, if you're in a shared custody situation or shared parenting opportunity in this case, instead of being in conflict, and what a great gift you can bring to your child, not trying to control the other parent, but saying, how can I be life-giving in my child's life? And it's about bringing life to something that has been destroyed, a covenant that has been disconnected, destroyed for various reasons, but now you're stepping in and saying, I'm going to be life-giving the best I can to my child in this next chapter of life so that God can still redeem what's there. Yeah, that's huge. Despite a separation or divorce, Sandy, how can moms and dads model positive behavior for their kids? You already touched on it, but what could they do today? Well, first of all, putting aside animosity towards the other parent and figuring out what immaturity do I still have in my personality? What are my blind spots? And having people model good communication to provide hope for that child 
And then the other one is just being available. A lot of times emotionally, parents in these situations are unavailable or too busy and a child languishes and does things on their own and slowly they go to outside sources like peers to find their answers and survival. Make sure you're present, you're available. One thing we recently did for dads is called One Win a Day. You can go to focusonthefamily.com slash dadwins. And then we send you 30 texts, one a day, where it's, it's a win. And moms, you can do it as well. Just uh, apply it to you. For instance, one of them, just come in with a smile and notice the momentum you create by doing that. If I was a parent in this situation, I would begin with learning to listen first. Enter their train of thought as if you're stepping into their train and then picturing things from their point of view. And it's not about feeling sorry for them. It's about learning wisdom on how to guide them through these big emotions they may be feeling some anxiety. Panic has gone up in the last couple of years with divorce going up and also just anxiety in general with news. Enter that world with your kids and then take those moments of pausing and being present with what's going on and not defending yourself, but guiding out of wisdom. You can start with a seven traits assessment just to see maybe there is a blind spot there. And that gives you a starting point of content if you're feeling a little overwhelmed as to, you know, how do I do this well? That's well-researched and you can start with a free assessment and that's at focusonthefamily.com. That's Focus on the Family's Danny Huerta. I'm Tracy Lynn, Family Life News. All right, good stuff. Thanks, Tracy. The name of the program, Faith Under Fire, comes your way Thursdays during the noon report or online anytime at familylife.org. Good afternoon. Here is your Family Life regional weather forecast. An area of low pressure in the upper levels of the atmosphere will keep a cool pool of air over us. But as higher pressure builds in at the surface, that'll be clearing the skies where there are clouds now and setting us up for a nice start to the upcoming weekend. For this afternoon, a good deal of sunshine across central and western Pennsylvania. A sun cloud mix elsewhere, a couple of scattered showers southeast of Lake Ontario. High temperatures upper 50s to the mid-60s. For tonight, generally clear, but a couple of lake effect clouds and showers southeast of Lake Ontario. Chilly tonight, low temperatures generally 40s. For tomorrow... Sunshine, mixed clouds, high in the 60s, and ample sunshine, warmer Saturday with high temperatures at or a little above 70. All right, thanks, Kevin. And finally, if his congressional gig doesn't work out, well, the Washington Nationals may be able to use this guy, a Florida Congressman Greg Stubbe. Wow, this is a long Greg ball. Stubbe with the Greg first Stubbe. pitch and the first swing is going to be a home run. Stubbe out of the ballpark into the left field bleachers. How about that? Happened last night at the Washington Nationals Baseball Stadium. The Republican representative became the first lawmaker in 40 years to hit a ball out of the ballpark at the Congressional Baseball Game. Greg Stubbe getting all of this one. Look at that swing he put on it and just drilled it to left. That ball got out in a hurry. That was a bona fide Major League home run right there. Absolutely. Former Texas Congressman Ron Paul, remember him? Well, he was the last lawmaker to hit an out-of-the-park homer during that baseball game. It happened in 1979. Now, in addition to showing his prowess at the plate, Congressman Stubbe last night was also the GOP's starting pitcher, and he recorded the last out of the game at third base to preserve the win for the Republican Party. Give that guy 
the baseball, the game, uh, the player of the game, Greg Stubbe, last night. And that's the world we live in, Thursday, the last day of September. I'm Bob Price, Family Life News. You've been listening to the Noon Report, heard weekdays on Family Life. Thank you for listening.